Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in, wherever you are, in the UK and indeed the rest of the world. And uh, this is the time of week where we have a conversation together with somebody. And this week we're going to look at trains, one of the themes of our uh, times together at the uh, Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative, because the state of the railways uh, has so many layers to it as a theme to make sense of. The lack of control, the poor delivery, the lack of accountability, the kind of fractured levels of ownership. Um, and and yet it should be such a joy, railways. And we've explored many of the kind of themes in our time together over the months and indeed years we've been examining the state of this bloody country. Anyway, I thought uh, it would be great to speak to someone who is an absolute expert on railways in the UK now, the past, so we have a bit of context to make sense of it all, to look at the wider implications. What does it tell us about ownership, public ownership, private ownership, as well as just why the heck we can't get our act together on this front? And of course, it's been another week of strikes, but on so-called normal days, uh, which are pretty abnormal. You've got no idea whether you're going to get a train. Why is it worse in the north of England? Yeah, so many themes, which, as I say, relate to much bigger questions about the condition of Britain in 2023. So who better to reflect on these themes than Christian Walmart, who, as I say, has been written writing about railways in all kinds of different guises and outlets for many years. And his most uh, recent outlet is he's got a podcast called Calling All Stations, where Christian explores all aspects of transport. And yeah, he's got a blog and everything. So sit back or go running. Or if you're listening on a train, you're lucky to be on a train. Here is our conversation where we attempt to make sense of the railways and what it tells us about Britain. Christian Warmer, thanks so much for coming in. We're obsessed on this podcast about trains and what they represent uh, on many different levels. I want to go quite big in terms of context and so on, but could I begin with a, a small but perhaps symbolic issue? 
Is it really the case that when we roll up to a train station, whether it's the north of England, London or whatever, and you see train cancelled, train cancelled, train cancelled, it's partly to do with the fact that there isn't a rotor for seven day working on on the trains? Because I heard Mick Lynch challenge that. So is it the case that some train companies really aren't set up for a seven day rotor? That's absolutely right. Uh, Some of the companies post and even pre-privatisation, so back in the 90s, uh, some areas of British Rail and some of the train companies that were set up in the mid-90s did sort this out. And so they did deals locally with their drivers to for a seven-day rotor. And that, of course, meant a pay increase for the drivers, but it meant that they no longer got extra for doing uh, Sunday working in particular, uh, for which they used to get one and a half, twice the normal wage. But so the rail companies, the clever ones, did buy this out. But the other ones just let this fester for the whole period of a you know, quarter of a century of uh, privatisation. Uh, they haven't sorted it out. And so therefore, that gives the drivers the possibility of a kind of tacit industrial action, which, of course, uh, the unions deny this. But there's no doubt that if all the drivers suddenly say, oh, we're not going to work on a Saturday or even Sunday, um, then and we're going to spend more time with our family and uh, we don't really need the money, and they all do it together, they cause total chaos uh, for the rail company. And one could say that it's a form of industrial action, even but, though... But, but, it, but in some cases, it's not just that, is it? They might choose, oh, we don't want to work this weekend. We won't opt for that sort of, in inverted commas, overtime. And they run out of drivers. Absolutely. I mean, uh, the drivers are well paid, right? They make no bones about this. They say that they're well paid because that's the rate for the job, because... Uh, they've, uh, over the years, negotiated a lot of productivity improvements, which is true. But nevertheless, they're on salaries of anything ranging from fifty to 70000 uh, a year, which is you know, a good wage. So they do have the scope just to say, well, you know, I'm going to just uh, spend uh, Sundays with my kids. And, you know, if they're Partners work as well. You know, these are families that are on a six-figure, yeah, yeah. six-figure sum for for the year, and so they can afford to do that. Yeah. So, so we're in this crazy situation where I think you and I have talked about this. Uh, the BBC, which I was on staff at the BBC for a long time, is not one of life's most efficient organisations, actually. But you would never have a situation where, say, at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, you have a Radio 4 announcer say, uh, we have no newsreader. I'm sorry we can't bring you the report. Uh, We have run out of political correspondence. You staff a seven-day operation uh, as an absolute basic premise. And isn't this a symbol of the chaos of the structure of British railways, that even that isn't done. So the problem with uh, Britain's railways is that we've got a a kind of legacy structure from the days of British rail. And uh, what the railways did when they were privatised is they fragmented into lots of different companies, train operators, network rail, rail track as it then was, the rolling stock companies, engineering companies, and so on. And that fragmentation also results in a fragmentation of industrial relations. So it is no longer possible 
for uh, one overriding organization to negotiate change with the workforce. So what has happened is that it's ossified in the last 25 years because you you can't have kind of you know one bit of the organization kind of setting a set of rules and another bit of the organization uh not setting those rules and so uh, in a way this great privatization uh which was supposed to be uh, you know a search for efficiency and kind of you know better basis for the railway and so on has actually broken up traditional industrial relations structures and ossified them where they were 25 years ago and uh, another consequence of this is it not is that more widely uh, we I, I kind of focused in on one issue but there are, of course, so many issues. It's, it's a very complex task running railways. Is that with this current structure, no one's in charge. Is it? Everyone's in charge and no one's in charge. It's very hard to see who is accountable and responsible at any given moment. There are fascinating moments, aren't there, where there's some crisis and uh, a lot by instinct, turn to the transport secretary. Transport secretary said, nothing to do with me. I'm not running this thing. And then you turn to network, oh, no, no, it's train company. Uh, it, isn't this the fundamental problem? Uh, yes, no, absolutely. And uh, what's more, there's a lot of games going on as well. So, uh, you know, in, in an ideal world, actually, the transport secretary would make many of these decisions because... Uh, the network rail is uh, owned by the government. The train operating companies are effectively controlled by the government now that they no longer – what happened was that they used to take the fares and keep the fares. They no longer do that because that proved impossible under COVID. So essentially, they are just management contractors with a very limited task. So really, the transport secretary is at the heart of this. But you don't want that. You don't want a politician to be making day-to-day decisions over the railways. What you want is another organisation to be there. Call it British Rail, for example. And so they were supposed to, uh, under the current uh, review, which was launched in 2018, would you believe, Steve? So it's taken five years. Under the current review, they finally announced uh, last year there would be something called Great British Railways, which would effectively have this strategic oversight to be the quotes unquote guiding mind but uh, this has now been paralyzed because politics is paralyzed with the three prime ministers of the year and uh, four transport secretaries and god knows what else so uh, uh sorry only three transport secretaries we're ossified into a structure that is unworkable with nobody in charge with people kind of playing games so for example there was a deal on offer to the unions kind of quite recently. And then at the last minute, the government, and we don't quite know who that is, but it might have gone either to Jeremy Hunt or to Richie Sunak, said, oh, no, 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 we have to impose some conditions. So we have to say, oh, we want to work towards uh, driver-only operation throughout the network. Now, this is both technically impossible and from an industrial relations impossible and from a revenue collection impossible. It's a completely daft idea. But somehow this idea came from somewhere. I don't even think the transport secretary made that decision. I think it was made above. And so it paralyzed the negotiations. Anybody who has any knowledge of what the... Uh, 
industrial relations in the railways are would know that you cannot put such an idea to uh, the brothers and sisters and uh, meet with any type of positive response. They just know that. But Maybe these people up there in number 10, number 11, whatever, don't know that. Yeah. Now, let's have a look at this great British Railways uh, proposition, which you say, you know, was proposed some time ago. It's no sign whatever of it happening in the current chaos. Um, If it were to take shape, would that answer the question, who's in charge of the railways? And we all, without hesitation, say this new institution. Or is it in that, what's the phrase, guiding light? Guiding mind. Guiding mind. Very revealing phrase, isn't it? Because it doesn't imply much leverage, much direct power. Uh, You're offering advice as a guiding mind or whatever. Uh, But but would it be? Would that be the answer? Ah, That board is in charge, full stop. Ah, well, there's two versions of this, ah. and there's a big debate within Whitehall and Westminster about this. So the original idea, which was put forward, remember, by Boris Johnson, remember him, and his uh, transport advisor, Andrew Gilligan, and they were very much of a mind that you needed uh, essentially a strong centre to run the railways. And and certainly Andrew Gilligan, who was the driving force behind this review, even though it's called the William Schatz Review, he wrote most of it. You can see it's very well written, so it's written by a journalist. You can see that. So Andrew Gilligan kind of was very much of the idea that you needed to have control over all aspects of the railway and they needed to be run by essentially a state organisation. So it was kind of a recreation of the old British Rail. But now, now we've been through uh, uh, two different prime ministers. We've got a, a, a sort of different kind of person in number 10 and a different uh, transport secretary. And they've looked at this and they've listened to a lot of backbench Tory MPs who are very worried about this. They don't want a recreation of British Rail. They feel that, you know, there must be the incentive for the private sector to flourish within the structure. They, they want the strong private sector involvement. They think, mistakenly, but they think that, you know, there's a, a amount of money that the private sector wants to pour into the industry and, and so on. So they're looking at this great British railways and saying, no, 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 we want an organisation that's still very much open to private sector involvement, that has a light touch uh, and enables kind of, um, you know, a thousand flowers to bloom. Uh, And so that is stuck in in Whitehall at the moment. I mean, they are such contrasting visions, aren't they? Uh, And and if it's the second one, it won't move us much further in trying to get an answer to the question, who's in charge? Absolutely. Because the thousand flowers will all think they have responsibility as they bloom, in inverted commas. We're in chaos again, if that's the vision. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, ironically, of course, that's what happened in the first place. Why do we have a review? Because in May 2018, there was a a real problem that uh, what what happened was that the train operators had got themselves contracts to run a certain amount of trains that actually Network Rail could not cope with. That that Network Rail being the infrastructure operator, nobody had actually... Uh, consulted with Network Rail and say, well, we want X number of trains between, say, London and Manchester. And 
they couldn't actually have enough train passes. There's a limit of how many trains you can get on it. So that's what started the whole review process, the fact that there was this dissonance between what the train operators wanted and what Network Rail was capable of delivering. So they thought we must have this guiding mind. But if you then open it up again to the private sector and say, well, you know, let your fowls and flowers kind of all all kind of uh, uh, put in their bids and uh, go and put, uh, put out ideas to run extra trains and so on, we'll be back to the same chaos. So uh, it's turned full circle. And Steve, there is total paralysis on it now. That, that, this is a demo, you know, one of the reasons why uh, we're getting such a poor train service, because nobody quite knows what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. I hope to be interviewing Andy Burnham on the podcast very soon. It is worse much worse in the north of England, it seems. Why is it so much worse in the north of England, given that the structure is the same everywhere? Uh, Well, they're just uh, hit bad luck, really. They've got uh, two franchises up there which are performing particularly badly. So the the main intercity franchise, uh, you know, London to Manchester, Birmingham, Liverpool, and so on, Avanti, uh, is in a complete state of chaos they they first of all they they don't have this rest day working so uh they have not incorporated that into their system so they're reliant on the the volunt- drivers volunteering yeah. to work crazy it was a crazy, crazy um but they inherited that and they haven't dealt with it but then they also they've lost the stuff i've talked to drivers in avanti and they just seem to have uh the, the management just seems to have kind of you know, lost their way in terms of of staff management relations, and and that's you know, railways have always been dependent on the goodwill of the workers prepared to run that extra mile. To you know, if there's a delay for two hours, they don't knock off their shift; they just kind of continue running the train, all that sort of thing. So it's always reliant on goodwill, and that's collapsed. And then they've got this other franchise up there, Transpennine Express, which has also suffered from the the lack of a rest day working agreement also seems to be particularly poorly managed um, and it really ought to be able to cope given that it doesn't run that many trains but it's got a great shortage of drivers now one of the reasons the shortage of drivers is COVID we have to we have to kind of accept that there is some uh, historic problems here COVID meant that you couldn't have two people in the cab Right. And not having two people in the cab meant that you couldn't have a trainee along with the experienced driver because they might catch COVID. That was the kind of fear. And so therefore, much driver training, particularly the latter stages of the driver training, where really the the trainee is just sitting next to an experienced driver, couldn't happen. So there is an overall shortage uh, in the industry. Uh, But let me say, there's one completely daft aspect of this, is that, again, in the negotiations between government and uh, the unions, the government come up with this idea said uh, to the drivers, well, there's going to be no redundancies until 2025. And the drivers told me this, as left, I had a conversation with them, say, well, actually, there's a great shortage of drivers. There should be no chance of any redundancies happening anyway. Why are you saying this? And all that is doing is actually is encouraging some of our members to think, oh, there might be some redundancy terms on offer soon. So we're we're going to hope to take advantage of that. And so it's a kind of complete failure on the part of government to understand how the the industry runs. And the North 
has just been particularly unlucky uh, in that the couple of franchi- main franchises up there has uh, have, have performed particularly badly. But there's other issues around the country, around England, it must be said, because Wales and Scotland have largely settled their, their differences with the trade union. At the heart of this, isn't there? There's partly a sort of it's why railways are so interesting uh, on, on many levels. There is a sort of ideological issue, isn't there, around ownership? Interestingly, uh, Labour are very timid on the issue of ownership, aren't they? Uh, Blair and Brown basically bought the idea that the privatisations were uh, fairly successful and had to be managed. Now, with Keir Starmer, it's quite interesting. He has reneged on all the other ownership propositions from the Corbyn era. But with railways, they are sort of, what are they saying? would be the word. Equivocating. <laughs> so, so, so there's no clarity there either, you're saying. Um, well, they're going to take them over, aren't they, uh, when contracts run out, the well, train companies? Well, well, Steve, essentially, the railways are uh, controlled by government at the moment, right? Yeah. What has what yeah. the private sector uh, got left? Because the operations... Are, were franchises, but they're no longer franchises. They're, they're now management contracts. The big difference is that in the old days, there was an incentive for the private companies to get as many people using the railways as possible because they would keep the fares. So an extra tenner for them for the, on the fares was an extra tenner for uh, the company and they'd go on, on their profits. Since COVID, that proved impossible, of course, because COVID reduced uh, rail usage to 5 or 10% of, of uh, normal. And so, therefore, all the train operators would have gone bust. So they were essentially taken back and then given short-term management contract deals. So they're already in the essentially in the, in the public sector. The network rail, which used to be rail track, that was a private company. And then in the early 2000s, essentially that proved unworkable as an arrangement for various things because of accidents, because of failure to uh, actually deliver the refurbishment of the West Coast mainline uh, at any kind of reasonable price. It essentially went bust, was taken in by the government and is now Network Rail, which is a government company. So much of the railways is in control. The key point, I think, is whether the Starmer government, which hopefully will happen in the next 18 months, two years, will have the guts to say, actually, we don't need to contract out all these services to uh, the private sector. We could run them directly. And what's more, we could merge them all with Network Rail and create a new proper British Rail, which then would be at arm's length from government. We would no longer have the Department for Transport running things, which is a disaster, but we would have this kind of strong, independent organisation in much the same way as uh, British Rail, about which I've written a book called BR A New History. I want to ask you that next, actually, because uh, again, on this podcast, one of our favourite themes is context. And you, as you said, have written this book about British Rail. And one of the interesting things is partly about how we view the past. Um, it's become, you know, an image of soggy sandwiches on rubbish lines and strikes and so on. But you actually, in looking back, end up kind of, not uncritically, but you it's a fascinating book because you put the downsides, but you end up saying, look, it really wasn't as bad as everyone thinks it was. And there's a strong case for British Rail. Yes, I mean, uh, British Rail had a 50-year 
history, existence, um, and struggled for much of it and went through various phases. So in the 1950s, there was a big investment program called the Modernization Program, which was, you know, in today's money, about 15, 20 billion. So it was serious, serious money. But much of it was misspent. They didn't quite know what they wanted. There was always this nirvana, this search for the holy grail of a railway that would pay for itself, right? Which is a nonsense concept. Yeah, you know, we don't expect yeah. roads to pay for themselves. We don't expect the army to pay for themselves. Yeah. We don't expect the police. You know, yeah. the railway is a service, but it yeah. has a commercial side. And that's always the confusion because intercity, for example, can be profitable. And make money. And yeah. even commuter lines can make money if, they, if they're kind of run properly. But you can't make money out of the whole railway network if you're also trying to provide a service. But So there was always this search for... Uh, you know, the the railway that was profitable. So, uh, but towards the end of its life, British Rail was finally run by a, a very good railway man called Bob Reed. There were two uh, Bob Reeds. He was the first one of that name. And he created this structure, which some older listeners will remember, which was essentially the passenger services were divided into three, intercity, uh, network southeast for the commuters around London, and the rest, the rump, which was regional railways. And the first two of those not only kind of improved service and the like, but they actually became profitable. Intercity was highly profitable. Network Southeast actually broke even or even made a, a, a kind of profit. But the important thing was they were given a lot of freedom, both from British Rail itself and by government. So they could make investment decisions. They had a budget that was set, and that, that's always problematic, of course, but they had a budget that was set. And they could also say, well, if we generate, you know, five or 10 million extra from this business, we can then spend it and reinvest it. So it was like proper businesses run by a very good cohort of managers who were trained within British Rail, who joined as graduate trainees and worked their way up to, to run these companies. And that was highly successful. And it only really fully came into being at the beginning of the 1990s, and lo and behold, just at the time where British Rail was an effective organisation, along comes uh, the John Major government with some vague scheme to privatise it. They didn't know what they were doing. They said, oh, British Rail was not innovative, not kind of uh, commercially minded, was, you know, had soggy sandwiches, a really stupid thing about uh, sandwiches. sandwiches. I mean, yes, it's a transport <laughs> company, you know. So what what its sandwiches are like? You know, it's got nothing to do with it, you know. But, I mean, it's always this kind of stale sandwiches bit. And they destroyed what had been created only a few years before as an effective state-owned but not state-controlled organisation. It was a very good a kind of compromise between kind of state ownership and, and commercial mindedness. And that was destroyed. And so what, what Labour needs to do is to, as much as possible, recreate that. You can't kind of, you know, some of it is just broken up in such a way that it's very difficult. Like the rolling stock, for example, has been sold off and nobody's going to buy that again. But if you've got new rolling stock, you can ha you could actually uh, buy it uh, directly rather than leasing it and so on. So you could gradually work towards a coherent, integrated organisation. And that's the key word, is integration. Because having a separate business which is 
a rail infrastructure company is a nonsense. It's, it's kind of what I've called in my uh, writings very often pretend capitalism. So you're pretending that you can make a profit out of something that you know has a very limited business uh, that has very little potential for for growth, but you know you you want it to kind of play at the capitalist game and. I argue very strongly that that's just Doesn't nonsensical. Work. Yeah. Why it can't be seen as a public service, as you say, like the army and all these other things, um, we would be in a better position. Now, I heard you on a, a program the other day with a panel. There were too many on the panel, and so no argument developed. But it, was, it gave me the idea to get in touch with you to do this discussion. But someone else on the panel said, actually, although we all think it's better in other countries, it really isn't that much better. And that surprised me. Do you, do you agree with that, that, you know, we kind of romanticize about France, Spain, Switzerland, Germany, maybe Japan? Or do you think, you, you travel on these things all the time, that we are in a much worse place than those countries? Um, yes, I think that was Mark Smith of a man at seat uh, oh, he, 61. At yes. seat 61. Um, who yeah. does know his stuff, but he didn't quite say uh, that it's as bad over there. He just said it's not quite as we might uh, dream about it. And yes, there's been problems in Germany, for example, where they've underinvested in their infrastructure and they're catching up and there's lots of train delays. There's industrial relations problems in France. But um, what he did say, and I do totally agree with that, that all those countries still have one big state-run organisation. They might yeah. privatise bits or they might have competition on some lines. Someone's in control. But An institution is in control. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And making decisions and getting investment. And for for example, you know, in, in all those countries, uh, there's been... S- post-COVID recovery schemes. So, you know, in Germany, they had this nine euros to use the railways for uh, a month. In Spain, they've actually been running free services and so on. And they had enough imagination, enough scope to be able to do that and say, OK, we're going to foot the bill for, for this sort of scheme. In this country, we've only we've had the £2 bus fare, which, which uh, you know, outside London, which is an excellent idea. But there's been nothing similar on the railways, we still have, you know, fares between London and Manchester of £350 if you'd book it the day before. Insane stuff. So what that gives those countries is the ability for for governments and the large state-run organisations to to interact and to make uh, big decisions. And it is also uh, the case that undoubtedly average fares in those countries are lower. What we have in this country is advanced fares that you can get cheaply on long-distance travel and so on. But there is not the kind of notion that you can connect with governments making political decisions that we want to encourage people to use the railways as for environmental reasons, for for health reasons, for all sorts of reasons. You might want to encourage people to use the railways rather than uh, cars. And we don't have that potential of influencing a large state-run organization to uh, promote uh, rail use. And and that's a great... And they're looking for that. They're looking at kind of, oh, we ought to reform the fares, and they certainly ought to reform the fares. We ought to have some, there's some you know, overall organization guiding mind. But we're just paralyzed between the ideology of we must involve the private sector and the uh, the fact that 
in reality, the best way to run a railway is to have a state-run, a strong state-run railway at arm's length from day-to-day government decisions. It's such a shame, isn't it? I mean, the railways, in a way, are are a symbol or should be a symbol of great optimism and hope. You know, you turn up at a railway station, you see all those destinations. If it works, you can sit and read or work on the train you get. It should be fantastic. And I think in our... Uh, lifetimes it rarely has been and at the moment it is dire I mean just stepping back beyond all the kind of policy implications that we've explored uh, a you must be so frustrated because I know you use them all the time trains uh, and you put your bike on them and that's difficult on some lines and why do we struggle with something which is potentially fantastic to well-being to the economy uh, and, and yet we're in total insane chaos Yes, I think there's a great uh, statement about the fact that in uh, a civilised society, the public transport is not just for the poor, it's it's the rich use the trains uh, rather than choosing cars. And I, I think that, you know, we have no such notion of kind of encouraging uh, rail use uh, across the board, making it... You know, we have a mean-spirited view of it. I mean, in Germany, for example, they have family carriages. They encourage people to, as you say, put their, their bikes on. They, they, they have dining cars still, at least decent kind of uh, service. Whereas here, we cram in as many seats as possible. Uh, you know, you only have to go on those new Avanti trains, to, to, to on, which are in use on, on both the uh, uh, East Coast Mainline and the Great Western. And see, they cram in as many seats apart. They've taken out tables because tables take up space. They create seats that have no window view, despite the fact that by the window, they kind of uh, can't, you can't see outside and so on. There's no effort. And this is odd because this is supposed to be private companies, but they're only interested in the kind of narrow basis of making money. So there's no notion of let's make railways really competitive with other other kind of aspects, make it pleasant, you know, have have nice spaces, you know. We've made some wonderful stations and stuff, but yeah. there's no kind of integrated idea of making the whole experience pleasant. You know, we have people, you know, gate lines, which are a real hassle to people rather than having people checking your tickets because, like, you know, it's it's cheaper to do that and, and so on. And I think you're right. I mean, in all my writings about the railways, I always kind of try and promote the idea that they are, in a way, the apogee of civilization. The mm. railways mm. created modern capitalism. I, you know, they, we, we, we could do another podcast on, on that subject, but they did. You know, they so started 1830 and, and they kind of spread around the world and they were the means of traveling kind of any kind of distance for, you know, almost 70, 80 years before we start getting cars. And I still think that's true today. The best way to travel for sort of reasonable distances is uh, by rail. And we sort of seem to have forgotten that. We kind of have kind of promoted as this kind of rather nasty, mean kind of way of traveling that, you know, we'll just put up with the passengers if we have to. But, you know, really, it would be better if nobody used <laughs> no, them at yeah, all. Be much better if no one used yeah. them. Do you dare to hope? That it could get good again, uh, oh, again, uh, or get good. You know, oh, I'm a, I'm an old lefty, so you know, if you're an old lefty, you have to kind of uh, uh, live in hope. And uh, I do say see ways forward. And there's, you know, look, trains brought by and large, I kind of, you know, more efficient. 
uh, there's fewer accents. You know, remember, there used to be kind of a lot of train accidents. And really, since uh, 2000, there's been very few, only a couple of fatal crashes uh, in the last 20 years. And, and that's a great improvement. There have been some wonderful station. I mean, you know, you just look at that. I mean, I wrote a book about London stations and you just look at those stations and, and some of them are fantastic. You know, yeah. St. Pancras, London Bridge has been uh, greatly improved and, and so on, you know. And so uh, I do look forward with optimism. Uh, but I just wish that politicians of all hues understood the greater value of uh, public transport and railways yeah. in particular. And it's not just kind of a means of getting from A to B. It should be as a, as a kind of, uh, you know, real uh, wonderful way to, to, to view uh, the country, to uh, get around fast, efficiently. I mean, it's just a more pleasant experience than driving, you know, from London to Manchester in four hours on the motorway. What is better than taking the train for two hours, 20 minutes? It should be a fantastic experience. And your new podcast will be looking at the twists and turns on a kind of weekly basis, because at the moment, for sure, there are twists and turns all the time, which you have to analyse if you want to have any sense of what's going on in public transport in all forms. Uh, yes, we've called it calling all stations precisely because it looks at all aspects of, of transport. And, you know, transport is a great neglected area. I mean, I've made my living for the last 30 years writing uh, uh, about transport and kind of developing a, a niche there. And what's interesting is we all use transport every day. You know, there's very few people just stay at home all day. They're all either walking or cycling or, or driving or using public transport or whatever. And we don't talk about it much. And no. the transport secretary is the last person to kind of be appointed, you know, kind of. And, and we get really kind of inadequate people such as uh, Chris Grayling, who was transport secretary for so, so long, just because he was this kind of last man standing when they, they, are, you know, they were looking for ministers. And, you know, that's such a mistake. I mean, transport should be at the core of many policies, whether it's housing, whether it's employment, whether it's, you know, even security, you know, there's all sorts of aspects of uh, our ways of life that transport plays a part and is totally neglected. So, you know, if there's one thing I've tried to do in all my writing is to promote the idea that transport is important, that it's been neglected, and it can be a great bonus. I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in the New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Transport and housing are the two policy areas which affect all of us every day. And there are probably 30,000 podcasts on high politics, including this one. 
and 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 you started one up uh, now on on transport, and there won't be as many competitors. And housing, I used to work for Shelter many years ago, and right, that was the other right. one that yeah. people don't talk about. Yeah, you know, the and, two and, big and policy areas that yeah. touch us every day of our lives aren't big uh, news priorities. It's very weird. I it? think it's because they're both terribly difficult. There, there are, I mean, oh, I do have some obvious solutions for transport and there's some obvious solutions for, for housing but they're actually very difficult to bring about I yeah. mean we, we know how to solve housing is to build more social housing yeah. right yeah. and to give people but in the private rented sector that, yeah yeah, how, you get, there. how yeah. you get there and so on transport is the same we know what uh, improves transport but then it becomes war on the motorist you know and uh, you know if you yeah. boost public transport and create bus lanes and encourage cycling you know we get into culture wars with yeah. amazing culture wars over, over low transport neighborhoods you know uh um it's extraordinary it's a shame it should be that's something that you know you talked about uh europe and stuff that's something they do better in europe on the whole that there isn't these great terrible political divides over transport i mean by like look france has 25 towns with trams you know we have half a dozen and we struggle to build any more and they're building them all the time mm. china has 48 Places with metro systems. Really? 48. Yes. I checked that out the other day. (laughs) And so, you know, and we invented the underground, right? 1863, London's the world's first underground. We invented it, you know. And we have a dozen lines in London. We have Glasgow and sort of Newcastle and sort of Liverpool, and that's it. So, you know, uh, we could really do with putting it further up the agenda. No question. Well, look, good luck with Cordial Stations. And Christian, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Pleasure. So that was Christian Warmer. As I say, he's got his own podcast, Calling All Stations, a new podcast exploring all kind of elements of uh, transport. And I think, you know, we've got to carry on probing as to why we're in this state. And uh, an interview coming up will be with uh, Andy Burnham, who, of course, is uh, mayor of Greater Manchester. And one of his big themes has been transport. And uh, uh, it'd be fascinating to hear what he's done to the buses, because, again, buses, like trains, bring in not just the importance of delivery and a way in which people, the so-called left behind, can be reconnected. If you get proper buses with affordable fares, people without cars suddenly become connected again deregulation in the 80s, an overlooked problem. Can it drive growth? Can it deal with regional inequalities? Huge themes. Anyway, we'll be talking to Andy Burnham about some of these uh, very soon, hopefully, and lots of other interesting interviewees being lined up. But more immediately, well, there's a lot going on, isn't there? The fallout from Zahawi, the issues relating to Dominic Raab and um, the strikes, so many, so many kind of themes whirling around. So within days, we need to get back together again uh, to make sense of it all. In the meantime, enjoy yourselves, whatever you're doing as far as you can. And thanks so much for listening to this podcast. Take care. Bye. Bye.